Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful to you for what we've been able to sing to you, that we've been able to pray to you, and now that you invite us to open your word and to see what you have to say to us this morning. Father, our longing and our desire is that you would transform us and that you would change us as we look more clearly at Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is, we pray, and help us to long for all that he offers us uh, in terms of who he would make us to be, but also the eternity and the worship that he places in front of us and the opportunity for us to be closer to you. So, Father, we pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, you would humble us and you would help us. We so need it uh, this morning. We so need it in our lives. Uh, so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you're doing well in amongst all of this lockdown stuff. We are praying uh, for those who are coming in and joining in with our uh, live streams. And uh, we're so thankful for, to you for joining us. So let me start with a question. I wonder if you've got an embarrassing wedding story. Maybe that's something you can share at lunchtime with uh, with your families or sat around about that. Maybe you have something that springs to mind that time where you were embarrassed at a wedding or you saw something else embarrassing happening at a wedding. So let me tell you our embarrassing story. Um, a few years ago, Alison and I were invited along to a wedding and um, we did what you always do. We got into our clad rags. Alison put on a dress and looked spectacular. I wore my kilt and looked uh, less spectacular. Um, and we went, went along and it was a beautiful ceremony. We, we, we enjoyed the wedding and I, I, we travelled to the reception with some very good friends of ours and we were discussing back and forth. They were talking about how they'd been a little bit puzzled. They weren't entirely sure that they had been invited to the whole thing and to the reception, to the meal and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, they, they were a little bit nervous going. We were confident we'd checked, double checked our, uh, our, our invitation and uh, we were invited to the whole thing. So uh, we were pretty comfortable with that. So we arrived and we mingled around as you do at a wedding, touch, chatting away to some folks who uh, we, uh, we hadn't seen for a while and were having a great time. Then rumours started to circulate that the bride and groom had arrived, so uh, we went to, to kind of and starting to feel a little bit hungry and ready for our dinner. We went to go and look and see who we were going to be seated with at our table. So we looked down the list and uh, didn't see our names. And so we looked a second time and our names still weren't there. And they, they hadn't magically reappeared. And we realised our shock and horror that our names weren't on the board at all. So we hatched the plan. We thought, right, okay, let's slip out. The, let's slip out as quietly as possible. Minimal fuss. Whatever we do, we can't speak to the bride and groom. We need to avoid them because we don't want to create any embarrassment uh, for them in any way, shape or form. And so uh, we, we tiptoed out. But sure enough, who did we walk past, directly past? The bride and groom were there. So we came up with some lame excuse about going and checking on the kids or something like that. And um, went home and sat down at our dinner table with our kids in their t-shirt and shorts and our wedding finery <clears throat> and had a delicious wedding meal of chicken broccoli, break, chicken broccoli bake. I went back in the evening and enjoyed a wonderful party and had a great time at the wedding. But a little bit embarrassing for sure. Uh, John chapter 2 tells us an embarrassing wedding story. Uh, a, a guy is responsible, a bride and groom are getting married and the bridegroom is responsible for making sure that there is enough wine for all of the guests for a prolonged feast, sometimes almost up to a week-long feast. Um, and and to, to, to run out of wine at an event like that in a region like Cana in Galilee would have been a massive social embarrassment, massive shame associated with that. And there's some evidence even that it could have opened the bridegroom up to a lawsuit from the, the bride's family because of the embarrassment caused. So that's where we land in. Jesus has been invited to a wedding. And, and here we see what is called the first of Jesus' signs 
Okay, we're called this morning signposts, um, and that's really an idea to, to give us an idea of what Jesus is pointing us towards. And he used John uses the word signs to describe those things. So the two things that are signposted for us and what we're looking at in the wedding at Cana, and then the next episode, which is uh, which is the clearing of the temple, which we'll come to later on this morning. Those two things point us towards some realities that Jesus came to bring about in terms of our eternity and in terms of our worship. That John uses the term signs to describe the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, and it's a really helpful way to describe it. Because they're more than just crowd pleasers, they're actually eternity teasers. They are things which give an indication of some eternal reality. They are, when Jesus does something, it's a sign, it's signposting something. It's really revealing some spiritual reality that Jesus is fulfilling. So here's the first thing that we, we see from this. As we're, as we're trying to apply these things to our lives and understand what they mean for us today and as we're looking to be transformed by them, here's the first signpost that we see. The signpost is to this, that Jesus invites me to feast forever. So Jesus is at this wedding. He's invited there. His mum's there. The disciples are there. That's like the scene is set for us. And Jesus' mum, Mary, comes to him and tells him that they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. Now, at that point, most of our guys are reaching for the car key. said, that's fine, we can go home now, I'll go and fetch the car. But the women in our lives often like to party a little bit longer, and Mary is a problem solver. She wants to solve the issue. And so she says, well, can you do something about it? And Jesus' reply is, interesting to say the least. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you bringing me into this? Most importantly, my hour has not yet come. Now, that that language about Jesus' hour is really important in John's Gospel. So we have signs which are sprinkled throughout John's Gospel to help us see who Jesus is and clarify his identify as God the Son. But Jesus' hour is also really important. And we need to understand something in, at this stage in John's Gospel. John's Gospel is really split into two parts. Chapters 1 to 11, which cover the first three years of Jesus' ministry, and chapters 12 to 21, which really cover the final week of Jesus' life. So John 12 is that watermark, and, and uh, it's that watermark time that the, 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 the pace and everything shifts at that point. Now, Jesus' hour is mentioned nine times across John's Gospel. The first three times it is mentioned is to say that Jesus' hour has not come. The last six times is to say that Jesus' hour has come. Now, what we need to see is that the three, what, what's helpful to understand in terms of under, in terms of grasping all of this is that the three not yet comes are in that initial three-year span in chapters 1 to 11, and the six has comes are in the, what, that one-week period covered in chapters 12 to 21. So what that's telling is that the clock is ticking towards something significant, his suffering and death. When Jesus is talking about his hour, his hour has come in the build-up, in the immediate build-up towards Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and even in what we see ha- happening here in John chapter 2 is Jesus setting the countdown timer to just over three years away. Even though he's saying my hour has not yet come, he's admitting, he's letting us know that his hour will come and is coming. And the things we will remember next weekend when we celebrate Easter together are the things that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about his hour. So, so what's happening here in this, so we go back into the, the wedding feast, we go back to the wedding situation and this conversation that's happening between Jesus and his mom. And, and what, we, what we see happening is Jesus telling his mom that he is working to a different timetable to her. 
and it's not her timetable, and, it, and, and, and she doesn't have a say in that timetable. So he's been very clear about this, that there is something in mind, there is a timing, there is a timing that's involved in these things about him revealing fully who he is and what he will do. And it's not at this point. And then we have this fun uh, little aside that, that comes after that, where Mary says to, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I wonder, did she wink? Do you think she winked? Mary knew the kind of man Jesus was. Mary had seen his compassionate side for a long time. She'd benefited from his helpfulness and his ability to come through, not just for her, but also for others. She was saying to the servants, listen to him, he'll help you out. I wonder, did she expect a miracle? Had she seen him performing miracles? Well, verse 11 of chapter 2 tells us that this is Jesus' first sign. So there's no indication of him having performed any miracles or any signs up to that point. Rather, Mary was confident in her son's ability to find a solution. His character would have been evident to her way before this moment when his capacity for the miraculous was made known. If her faith is in anything, it is that that character and actually serves as a testimony to what she had observed in him over the years. So, so that's the kind of introduction to the, the, the scene is set, the, the servants are sent on their way and verse 6 tells us there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So I know some of you have been doing school at home, so here, here's a quick maths test for you. I know you feel as if this is a day when you're not meant to be doing that, but here's a quick maths test. If, if there were six times 20 gallons, how much water would have fitted in the jars? Quick, let's come up with an answer. First answer in the house wins. Okay, first answer in the house wins. Hopefully you've got that now. So at least, so this is telling us at least 120 gallons of water in six purification jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification and maybe even up to 180 gallons of, of water. So, so maybe we would ask, what do the jars and the water have to tell us about Jesus? Well, they tell us there was a lot of water and therefore the, what was about to happen meant there was going to be a lot of wine that was going to be produced. It wasn't a small miracle, it was a significant miracle. It was a, this involved significant quantities of liquid. And Jesus says to the, the servants, fill the jars with water. And it tells us they filled the, the, the jars to brim, to, filled the jars to the brim. Do you, see, do you see how confident Jesus is? This isn't, let's see how it goes with the first. It's fill them all to the top. Fill them all to the top. That's what Jesus does. He is so generous in his grace. He is so abundant in his provision. Fill them to the top. And that's what he would look to do for you and for me as well. To fill us to the top with all that he is and all that he has for us. So the the servants do what he says and they fill the jars to the brim. And Jesus tells them to draw some and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast would have been, if you think about the, the master of ceremonies at maybe some of the weddings you've been, he's a guy who makes sure all the tables are being looked after, who introduces the, the bridal party, who has you up standing for the entry, entry, entry of the bride and groom, who has you standing for the speeches, who makes sure everything is ticking along nicely. So he, would, he, would, he was a pro in the room. He was a professional guy. Who, he was a professional wedding planner, wedding organizer, wedding overseer. He was a master of ceremonies. Now pause here for a moment. What precisely do you think was going through the minds of the servants? What do you think was going through their minds when Jesus says to draw it and take it to the, the master of the wedding? What, 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 what do you think was, was going through their minds? 
what, what, what you want us to take water, Jesus? Do you want us to take water? I know your mum said we should do this, but really that seems like a crazy. And then, and then, and then they say, well, okay, then we'll, we'll, we'll do it. So they start to draw and it's, they, they discover, it's, wait, 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 it's not water anymore, it's wine. There's something I love about this. I love that the first sign was witnessed by a few likely sceptical servants who were scared of someone's mum. I love that. The sign came not first to the significant person, but to the servant. The servants were the messengers of the sign to the master. And the master did the taste test. He didn't even know, he didn't know where it had come from. That's what it tells us. He didn't have any idea. The servants didn't crack on. They didn't want to embarrass their master, the bridegroom. They didn't want to embarrass anyone. And the master of the, of the wedding, the master of ceremonies, calls the bridegroom and says to him, you know, every other wedding I've done, every other wedding I've worked, every other wedding I've been to, everyone serves the good wine first and then brings out the poor wine when folks are less likely to notice or care. Or when they're drunk, that's really what it's talking about. But you've kept the good wine until now. So to be clear, and I say this as someone who doesn't drink, the master of the feast is not commending Jesus and changing the water into schlor. And I quite like schlor. He turned the water into wine. He is taking, he's, th- th- this was a sign of how he is going to take our watered down experience of God, how he desires to take your watered down experience of God. And he's offering, he offers to turn it into a full bodied, fragrant enjoyment of God above all things. And that's what's offered to us through Jesus. You know, last week we saw that Jesus is the best lamb. Here we find him giving us a glimpse that he is also the best wine. He is, Jesus is, the greatest source of celebration when we know him. He is the toast of all creation. He is the basis of eternal feasting. And his arrival is an invitation to a wedding feast that will, arri- will last forever. Just take a moment with me and listen to Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9 and how it describes the wedding feast that Jesus that is pictured for us and joined with Jesus for all eternity. This forever feast that we're invited to when we've trusted him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made himself, herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. And this is for us. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are we if we're invited to this eternal feast. And blessed are we because Jesus does invite us through his presence in the world, through his death, on a cross, in our place for our sins. He invites us to that feast. So all of that means that Jesus gets to be your greatest source of joy. He gets to be the one you celebrate most loudly. He gets to be the source of your greatest hope. And we all need hope, particularly in days like today. There's something significant about his coming to bring rejoicing in place of ritual, to bear eternal purification, and to invite us to this eternal party. And in many ways, there's no surprise when we consider Revelation 19 and we look at the picture across the Bible, there's no surprise that Jesus' first sign is a wedding. I talked earlier on about our embarrassing wedding story. But I, I now don't, don't just get to go to weddings, I also get to conduct them. And what great joy that is. And here's what I say that shows something of why we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' first sign takes place at a wedding. The Bible is a wedding story. It is bookended by two weddings. It begins and it ends with a wedding. 
In the beginning, God brought together Adam and Eve, and from that day, the married relationship between man and woman has served as the ultimate human parable of God's relationship with his people. The Old Testament continues that parable expressing God's choosing of and relationship with his people Israel. The recurring picture is is of God's great faithfulness in contrast to the rejection and rebellion of those people he has chosen and how often that is referred to as adultery. Time and time again we see his amazing love for people who are prone to wonder. The New Testament sees the coming of Jesus, the bridegroom of the second and ultimate wedding at the end of all of this. Jesus comes to die for his bride, the church, those who would love, trust and be bound to him for all eternity. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the preparation of the bride for the great and eternal wedding feast that God has promised to those who believe in his son. And he invites you as well. He makes your attendance possible at this eternal feast. That's what we've seen so far in John. Receiving him and believing in his name frees you from sin to be given the right to become children of God. In short, Jesus allows you to be invited to his eternal family celebration. What a joy that is. This is telling us that that this is the first way he allowed people to see his glory. John 1 says that, talks about how we have seen his glory. Here Jesus is making his glory manifest. And it's not just a see and hear glory, but it's now a taste and see glory. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And his disciples believed him. And his disciples believed him. Do you see that belief in Jesus is often a growing thing? They believed in him in chapter 1, it tells us that. And there is a sense here, halfway through chapter 2, that the belief was only growing in who he was as they saw the kind of things that he was doing. So what does Jesus do after that? We're thinking, well, the sign has started, the ball is rolling, surely something amazing happens. Well, what does he do after that? He goes back to family life in Capernaum, that's what it tells us. Because it was just like he told his mum, his hour had not yet come. But it is coming and a journey to Jerusalem for the Passover probably set the clock ticking a little louder and seemed a little faster. He's going to show that while Jesus, Jesus is about to show us that while he invites us to feast forever, one of the means in which he will do that is the way that Jesus confronts my tarnished treasure. Now, those of you who've been trying to homeschool over the last week will understand that it's hard to concentrate and it's hard to do things when it feels like you're surrounded by a zoo. And and that's exactly what Jesus encountered in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeon, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus goes to the temple and actually what he's talking about here is also the area surrounding the temple. So the temple precinct. And the main opinion is is what happens here. In verses 13 to 17, happened in what was called the court of the Gentiles. That was where Gentiles, it was actually the only place in the temple temple where Gentiles could come and pray. They could go that far and no further because of their lack of identity with the people of Israel. And, and so Jesus is walking through the precinct and he stumbles across this scene. He finds people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and he finds money changers. 
and in, the, in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. The, 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 prog the pilgrims would have been unable to, particularly people who are traveling a distance, would have been unable to bring animals to, to sacrifice and, and, and would have had to have a means to change their, 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 their money into the local currency in order to bring an offering to the Lord. But what made it difficult and what Jesus objected to most of all was not, there's no sense there that it is about profiteering or the fact that that was something that was happening. In, in real terms, it was probably supremely helpful. Now, there may be some folks who are making some money on the side. There usually is, but that's not the issue that Jesus has here. What he is concerned about is that the Gentiles were being made to worship when they, with what felt like a, what, with what must have felt like a zoo happening around about them. Let's be clear that this was the only place the court of the Gentiles was, as we said earlier, the only place where they could worship. And there was a prejudice and callousness about the presence of the merchants there, that they'd been able to set up shop in the middle of the Gentile place of worship of God was, was, was horrifying to Jesus. It screamed to the Gentile worshipper, you won't matter. And Jesus has something to say about it. The, the disciples use Psalm, refer to, John refers to Psalm 69 verse 9 as the kind of re, Old Testament reference point for for what they saw unfolding as Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, the prophecies of the Old Testament and the promises of the Old Testament. Zeal for your house has consumed me. But in the same way, and in the same way as we thought last week about how the, the early followers of Jesus were had the names of the Lord tripping off of their tongue, all the Old Testament names for the Messiah tripping off of tripping, tripping over their lips. Here we find a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies being gathered up round about this. Not, and not just Psalm 69, verse 9. Consider Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify. And this is important because it speaks to the worship and the, the priesthood in, in Israel. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will purify that, that worship part and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Or Zechariah 14 verse 21 would be another example which says there shall no longer be a trader in the house of, there shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what's going on here is less clearly spiritual profiteering, or it might be, but, but it's definitely spiritual prejudice. So what Jesus does is he, he longs for people to feel as welcome in, in God's house as, as, as they really are, as God invites them to be. And so Jesus makes a whip and drives them out of the temple. And, and he tips over the money changers' coins and tipped their tables and told the pigeon sellers to get them out of there, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And Jesus would, would seek to do the same thing for us. He would seek to drive away the things that distract and distort your worship. We need him to do that in our hearts. We are so cluttered and so distracted by, by stuff and people and material concerns. How crowded and chaotic our hearts so often are. We're, our, our hearts are cluttered with counterfeits. Things that pretend to be worthy when they're not. Full of, our hearts are full of fake and fragile focal points, things that I really want to prove worthy but never do. 
Things that really want to prove themselves worthy, but they never do. Things that, hoping in things that hold me to ransom. That's, again, my heart is so prone to that. Is yours? Things that cause me to find my worth in them. I take my identity and my, the meaning of my life from those things. Or, or setting my heart on things that ultimately steal from me. Setting our hearts on things that ultimately steal from us. Things that strip the worth from us because we are so passionately pursuing them only to be crushed and disappointed and dissatisfied in them. Jesus wants to change that for you. He wants to give you a freedom in worship, a freedom to worship him. He wants to replace your tarnished treasure. He wants to drive out your tarnished treasure and he wants to replace that at the centre of your life and to fill your life with hope and joy and peace. Jesus' coming is designed to drive out those things from our hearts and direct us instead to God to say, you're welcome to to come to him. He, He came to make that way possible for us to approach him. So there are no barriers, there are no hindrances. We don't need to stop it there. Of course, we can go to him because we have Jesus there representing us. The invitation to worship is an invitation to find yourself welcome in his father's house. Jesus came to strip away every barrier to you seeing how awesome God is and, and how loved you are. If water into wine were a signpost to a transformed eternity, then the clearing of the temple is a signpost that Jesus has come to deal with our wonky worship. It's that Jesus releases me, third of all, to worship without measure. So quite the commotion. And it says that the Jews or the Jewish leaders who were there or who came to see what was going on said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Do you see in verse 18? And then in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it was it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What sign do you show us for these things? What they're really saying to him is, you better have something to show us to prove that you have the right to do any of this. They're asking Jesus to prove that he is legit. They're saying, they're saying you better be able to demonstrate that you have the authority for doing the things you're doing for driving these people out. Jesus answered them, okay, you want a sign? You want a sign? Here's a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews respond, understandably in many ways, misses the point. Their response is this, it's taken us 46 years to build it and you think you can do it in three days. And aside from anything else, it's an impossible sign. You're, you're, you're asking us to tear it down in order to prove who you are. Supposing you can't, that, that would be dumb of us. You see, Jesus' time had not yet come, Remember? His time had not yet come. So Jesus offered them a sign that they could never sign up for. But it wasn't a sign he had no intention of fulfilling. It was a sign that he would pay in full in three years' time when his time had come. And this, the use of three days, is really important here. It's it's the key to understanding what Jesus is actually talking about and what he's actually communicating. He's talking about what will happen in around three Passover's time. He is announcing the purpose for which he came. He is declaring what he will do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is telling those who are interrogating him they will be complicit in destroying his body, which is, rather than the the temple, his body is a true dwelling place of God. So he is the best lamb, he is the best wine, and he is also the, the best and true temple. 
but he will confound. But he's also telling them though that it won't stop at that. He will confound that. He will confound that destruction. He will confound confound that death by being raised again three days later. He's giving them, and he's giving John. John here is giving us all a teaser trailer for next week for Easter. Look at verse twenty-two. When, when therefore he was raised from the dead, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even the disciples, the penny didn't drop for the disciples until then. Oh, that's what he was talking about. He's telling them they're going to try him. He's telling these Jewish leaders that they're going to try him and crucify him and he's going to die on a cross. But that death will not stop him and three days later he will be raised from the dead. And what he's, what he's really telling them, he's showing them that he's revealing something, that sign is something that reveals the eternal reality that he offers to anyone who would trust in him. Death will be defeated. The claims of sin will be silenced for all who set their hearts and hopes on Jesus, the Son of God. That's what he's telling them. And as we said, even for the disciples, the penny is dropping slowly because they thought that, that Jesus meant the same as the Jews did. So the Jewish leaders asked Jesus to show what authority he had and he did precisely that. He told them what they would be involved in and what he himself would do three years from then. More he is telling them that he is going to replace the temple, that Jesus himself is going to replace the temple as the place of worship. And we can see with hindsight and from personal experience that this is going to mean an end to Gentile worshippers being outsiders. It's that we get to go and worship him. Because of, we, go, we get to go and worship God because of Jesus. Even more, he is giving a hint that the way to feast forever is not through the tarnished treasure of the things we often worship, but in the worship without measure that comes through him, the dwelling place of God's eternal nature. So here's the bottom line for us this morning. Without Jesus, we celebrate things that seldom satisfy and we worship things that are worthless and wonky. Jesus offers to fix not just those things for us, but so much more. What he offers, and this is if you'll join us next weekend for our Easter weekend uh, services, he offers to fix the sin that causes your heart to long for things that leave you feeling lost, and he frees you to live for something that is to do with eternal celebration. He invites you to a forever feast, and he includes you in worshipping in his Father's house. What an amazing thing that is. We are able to approach God through Jesus. That's the great blessing that he offers you. That's what he is signposting us towards. That's why he is the one we celebrate most and that we worship his highest. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful to you for Jesus. Thank you for the way that he makes open to us to be able to come to you, to worship you today, but also with the hope and the promise of an eternal feast that we are invited to in him. Father, we pray that these are not things we would take for granted. We ask that you would drive out the things that are to do with our tarnished worship, the things that we look for security in and identity from that are not Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, that you yourself would examine our hearts and you would direct us more clearly towards your son. May he be the one we celebrate highest. May he be the one we worship as most. That's our prayer this morning. Transform our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.